Hello, hello, John Elder here, Science Editor with The New Daily. Welcome to a brand new episode of What Does That Mean? Science, health, and anything that looks good under a microscope is our beat. This week, we meet one of the Harvard graduate scientists who are developing kitchen sink vaccines for COVID-19. The first point to make, don't try this at home. We also talk to a dental anthropologist about what our teeth have to say about us when we're dead. But first, news from the great beyond. Well, the Australian Outback. Ten eighty poison is used to control dingo populations, but a new study finds that in regions where poison baits were deployed, the average size of dingoes has increased over the past 80 years. Male dingoes are now more than a kilo heavier. Co-author of the study is Professor Michael Letnick from the University of New South Wales. Hello, Mike. What led you to do the study and how can the findings be explained? Good morning. Well, we became interested in the study because we'd, we'd heard many reports over the years that dingoes were getting bigger. And uh, we were interested in, in, you know, why that might be the case. And so what we did was we suspected that it could be because of 1080 poisoning. And we, we had two hypotheses that we were interested in. One is that um, the 1080 could drive an increase in dingo sizes because the, um, the dose that's required to kill a dingo depends on their mass. So larger dingoes, well, dingoes, larger dingoes need to ingest more 1080 to um, receive a lethal dose. So it could be that um, larger dingoes have an advantage over smaller dingoes. That so, was one so, so the poison was basically uh, uh, weighted enough to kill the smaller ones but not the bigger ones? Well, not exactly. So what, when they um, put baits out into the environment, all baits that they put out have more than enough 1080 to kill any dingo that eats them. But as soon as the baits go into the environment, the poison starts to degrade so that um, it, it leaches out with rain and microorganisms attack it. So the toxicity of the baits declines. And it, so if a dingo um, eats a, a bait where the poison is degraded, then we suspect that um, it's bigger dingoes that are more likely to survive. And uh, well, you, you had a second theory. Yeah, so our second theory um, relates more to the, the growth environment for the dingoes that survive po um, poison baiting campaigns. So the purpose of 1080 um, poisoning is to reduce dingo numbers, and it's very effective. But that means that the dingoes that survive, have there's less other dingoes for them to compete for food with. And another side effect of 1080 baiting is that it, it leads to increases in the numbers of their main prey, kangaroos. So with less dingoes around um, to prey on them, kangaroo numbers increase. So that means that for the dingoes that survive 1080 baiting campaigns, um, there's more food available and less competition. And so we, we, we think that dingoes that grow up you know, in a 1080 environment um, have more food and so will grow to a bigger size in, in, during their growth period. How did you, how, how did you measure, measure the growth? Uh, we didn't measure the growth, but how we did the study was that we um, we measured skull size of dingoes in museum collections. As, so, as, a, as a proxy? As a proxy for body size. So there's a good relationship between um, skull size and body size. And um, and so we used museums like a time capsule and we looked at um, muse uh, skull specimens in museums go going back as far as 1930 and up, up until the... Um, 
almost the present day. And then we um, we, cho- we had three regions where large-scale baiting programs were rolled out in the 60s or early 70s, and another region the um, from the sort of the Indigenous lands in Central Australia um, where large-scale baiting campaigns have never been undertaken. And what we found was that dingoes got bigger after 1080 baiting um, in the three baited regions, but not in the unbaited region. And so when you, were you actually at a point where you could lay out skulls from different periods of time and actually see that they got appreciably bigger? Oh, we never had the chance to do that um, on the table, so to speak, but certainly um, in our spreadsheets with, with the, um, and, and making graphs, it was really quite clear that there's an increase in size through time. You've got an interest in this perhaps happening with, with other species, is that right? Uh, we're very interested in, 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 in sort of the changes that any human intervention can result in. And um, previous research has, um, has shown already that, uh, well, we know um, that any use of pesticides will produce, is likely to produce changes. And we're, we're very familiar with the idea that if you spray insects with um, insecticides, they develop resistance to the poisons. Um, there's a study showing that rabbits in Western Australia appear to be developing some resistance to 1080, and, and it's well established also that rats have got um, some resistance to their poisons. So it's not unexpected that we might expect 1080 to produce changes on the dingoes. So what are you working on next? Oh, this is one of a number of projects, but um, one of the big projects that we're looking at is what, what the the environmental side effects of, of um, reducing dingo numbers. So we're very interested in um, how reducing dingo numbers produces, um, means that there's more kangaroos and then how then kangaroos affects translate to vegetation and, and, and the workings of ecosystems. Oh, just one other question. How did you account for hybridisation and that didn't have any effect on this? Uh... So there has been, there's been a, um, quite a bit of concern um, that dingoes are hybridising with domestic dogs. And, yeah. and that's certainly the case in eastern parts of Australia around, you know, in the densely settled areas, um, hybridisation has occurred. And um, and there have been some changes in dingoes because of hybridisation. And so some people have suspected that um, maybe dingoes were getting bigger because of hybridisation. Um, we tried to rule that out in, in our study by um, only um, using skulls from these remote desert regions of Australia where there's been almost no hybridisation. Where, where so, was that? So in the Pilbara, around Kalgoorlie in Western Australia, the, the, the pastoral lands in South Australia and the Indigenous lands of Central Australia. So pretty remote places. Very remote places where genetic studies have shown that there's almost no hybridisation occurring. And so that way we better rule out that these, um, these shifts in skull size were related to hybridisation. Oh, that's pretty fascinating stuff. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Heard the one about life arriving on Earth from outer space? The idea is that bacteria lay dormant inside a space rock from the outer reaches until that rock crashed on Earth where oxygen revived the germs that eventually evolved and turned into your grandmother. Well, Japanese scientists have shown that it's possible. They found microbes buried beneath the seafloor. They'd been there for more than 100 million years and they were still alive. Relocated to a laboratory, they began to feed and they began to breed. But here's the big surprise. These germs were found in the deadest part of the ocean. 
in the South Pacific Gaia, east of Australia. Mastermind of the project, geomicrobiologist Yuki Morono of the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology, says he wanted to know the limits of life. Now scientists are looking at the stars and wondering where else this is going on. Scientists have a history of experimenting on themselves. Jonas Salk tested his original polio vaccine on, on himself and his children ahead of clinical trials. West Australian physician Professor Barry Marshall dosed himself with the Helicobacter pylori bacteria to show that it caused ulcers. He won the Nobel Prize. So we shouldn't be surprised that with the world held hostage by COVID-19, that a group of scientists might trial vaccines on themselves. I recently wrote about a group of US scientists who have come together as the Rapid Deployment Vaccine Collaborative, also known as RADVAC, what they call a citizen scientist project. Many of the group are Harvard and MIT alumni, and they've developed a vaccine based on five readily available ingredients. Up to 70 people have taken the vaccine, which has squirted up the nose. One of those citizen scientists is with us, Alex Hoekstra. Hello, Alex. How many times have you taken the vaccine and how are you feeling? Um, so just two days ago, I took my seventh dose and I'm feeling good. So what is it, once a week or something? What do you... No, we, um, you know, we've been at this since early March. And we've been iterating on our design progressively, you know, as, as more research comes out uh, to better characterize the immune response to various parts of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, we've been able to very rapidly react to that research and augment our formula and, uh, and, and get it produced fairly quickly and uh, administer it. Look, as I read the situation, this vaccine isn't meant to be the vaccine the billion-dollar silver bullet. It's meant more to boost immunity in vulnerable parts of the body, namely the airways. Is that the ticket? Well, I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, right now, um, there is no billion-dollar silver bullet. Um, certainly, there are, you know, 200 or so commercial vaccines in the uh, authoritative commercial pipeline. You know, we're not interested really in, in competing with anyone. Um, what we're doing here is open-source research. Look, what I've read about the project, including uh, quotes from Professor George Church, the famed Harvard geneticist, who I understand has actually taken your vaccine at least twice, mm -hmm. part of the motivation for developing an ad hoc rapid response vaccine is concern that the virus is being underestimated. So uh, is anxiety about the disease the main driver or just the opportunity to see what citizen scientists or citizen science can do? You know, we see that right now, um, you know, the options for pursuing immunity and the options for even engaging in research about immunity are fairly limited to within commercial ventures and within uh, a handful of academic labs. Our, our hope in doing this research is to, is to react rapidly to something that for the time being is uncontrolled and for the foreseeable future has no end in sight. You know, we're very hopeful that uh, there is an end in sight with, with the authoritative commercial and academic channels. But um, we 
we recognized that, you know, we had the skills as, as molecular biologists, as geneticists, as uh, a very degree of, of biological experts. Um, we had the skills to engage in this research and not doing so felt unethical. So, so it's almost like a well, like a moral obligation to, to jump in the deep end, so to speak. Yeah, Redback has has published the ingredients and preparation protocols in a white paper online. Do you have any idea of how many people have downloaded it, and have you had any feedback of from people not directly associated with Redback who who have who've given it a go? Um, in terms of in terms of how many people have have accessed it, um, I couldn't say exactly. Um, you know, one of the things that we're most interested in is making our work accessible to anyone. You know, we, we really want to be as transparent as possible and lower the barriers to accessing this body of knowledge. We've had a lot of interest. Um, we've had a tremendous amount of questions come into us about various aspects of uh, preparing uh, our, our research vaccine and, and other sort of protocol questions. So it's clear that there is an active interest in this you know, not just here in the States, but, but really internationally. And, and what I've noticed is that, uh, especially so in nations that, that sort of recognize that they aren't going to be first in line for access to the conventional uh, medical technologies and, and vaccines when, if and when they're created. I'm fascinated about, about this vaccine. It almost seems like a MacGyver vaccine you know the sure. kind of thing where you take you, you you sort of go up against this this global threat with what, what appears to be very little can, yeah. can we talk about the ingredients in the play? the simplicity of the thing is very interesting the vaccine uses commercially available synthetic peptides as small mm. portions of viral sequences that match up with parts of the virus this doesn't mean it's they come from the virus. They just happen to be strings of peptides that happen to match, I guess, what you call the shape of the virus, right? And they're the, they're, they're, they're the ingredient, they're the active ingredient, and they're pretty readily available. Correct, yeah. Um, synthetic peptide production is uh, commercially available. Um, you know, I can't speak for every country, but certainly one of the most accessible biotech purchases one could make. Okay, so well, that's that's the ingredient that kind of w would make sense. You sort of think, oh, okay, you can sort of see that synthetic peptides, you know, sure. matching up against the virus. But you also use chitosan, a sugar obtained from the exoskeleton of shellfish. It is used in medicines to mm -hmm. treat things like obesity and high cholesterol. Can you explain its role in, in the vaccine? Absolutely, yeah. Chitosan is uh, a really interesting molecule. Um, it's derived from chitin, which, uh, as you said, um, is found in the exoskeleton of, of shellfish and, and other sea life, uh, also found in mushrooms. Um, it's actually the, the second most common uh, polysaccharide on Earth, um, I think right after cellulose, which uh, is, is most of what plant matter is made of. But um, right. you know, very readily available, very common um, molecule, um, commercially available. Uh, and it has some interesting properties. When, when treated in the right way, uh, it forms this gel of nanoparticles. And uh, in the right sort of chemical conditions, uh, these, these nanoparticles will form around uh, the peptides. As a protective layer. Correct, yeah, as a, as a vehicle. So another ingredient is sodium uh, triphosphate, a preservative for seafood and, and, and meats and such. Where, where does that fit in? 
Yeah, that's a, a negatively charged compound that um, when uh, in the same chemical environment as chitosin um, helps to produce those, those little nanoparticles um, and, and solidify that. Uh, it's, it, it's sort of a gel uh, of nanoparticles. So like a binding agent in a way. Correct. Yeah. Right. Okay. And then the rest is, is basically table salt, really, and deionized water. Yep, um, correct. So, so the ingredients are pretty simple, but uh, is, is mixing it together, uh, what kind of knowledge do you need to do that? Well, um, I mean, I, I would certainly recommend everyone start by reading the white paper. I think, um, you know, the, <laughs> and I know that's not a small undertaking. Uh, no, having, it's pretty hefty. It is. Um, I think we're at 50 pages right now, but the knowledge in there is really comprehensive. You know, we, we began with some of the most fundamentals, uh, principles, technical principles of sort of vaccine development and vaccine testing. Um, and we really, we tried to show our math, um, such as it is, right? We, we really tried to be transparent about our approach to the selection of not just the, the ingredients as a whole and not just a nasal spray as a route of administering a vaccine, but also in, in selecting uh, the specific peptides that we have. You know, these correspond to well-characterized segments of the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that are becoming more well-characterized um, you know, on a regular basis by, by researchers who are examining the immune reaction uh, to specific sites on the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We declined to, to link. Well, I, I, I've made it clear there is a white paper. People could easily find it, but we kind of declined to, to link it to it. From, sure. I guess the legal concerns and, and, and I suppose basic ethical concerns. Well, one thing I've noticed, you haven't had as much media coverage as I, as I would have expected, particularly with George Church's involvement. One question that has come up is, is this legal grey area that you're operating in? Has the Food and Drug Administration come um, knocking yet? No, not yet. Um, as far as I know, um, we haven't done anything illegal. Um, I, I do aim to keep it that way. You know, we've, we've worked hard to characterize what we're doing as research, um, and we've done our best to, to take it on in as ethical a way as possible. You know, we all engage in this as individuals, you know, who, so in, in human subjects research, there's this concept of informed consent. Um, and it, it requires a certain level of understanding of what you're getting yourself into. I would say that at this point, we, we've taken that concept a bit further. Not only are we knowledgeable about the subject with which we're engaging, but we're actually engaging with it. So it feels like a new category of consent. You know, you might call it engaged consent, where it goes beyond a, a mere understanding of what's happening, but, you know, being truly involved in the research and development of what's happening. I so, think, the, as, as I understand it, you, you're sort of protected or you see yourselves as protected by the fact that there's no money changing hands, that, uh, uh, that there is no sort of... I guess formal organizational structure. It's not posing as a as a formal clinical trial. Those sorts of things. Um, look, my initial piece leaned heavily on an MIT technology news report. One of the concerns voiced in that report was the potential for a side effect called enhancement, in which a vaccine can worsen uh, a disease. Dicking with the immune system is is pretty risky business, isn't it? Certainly, um, and we've put a lot of consideration into enhancement. Um, 
SARS uh, back in 2003 demonstrated a level of enhancement, uh, not as a result of any vaccine, but merely as a result of uh, the body's reaction to the virus itself. So enhancement is something that, that we have considered and, and taken seriously from the outset, um, especially with precedent uh, in a, a previous coronavirus. But uh, certainly in, in vaccinology uh, across the board, antibody-dependent enhancement is, uh, is a concern. Um, and I'm really curious to know how, in accelerated clinical trials, the commercial pept or the I'm sorry, the commercial vaccines uh, expect to be able to to grapple with the long term safety um, and 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 really be able to ensure it. Speaking of which, I mean, how how, how is everybody doing? If you've, you've, as you said, you've had this vaccine uh, seven times. I have. What's been your uh, have any side effects started to show themselves in anybody apart from as I understand it's uh, it, it's a fairly uncomfortable uh, <laughs> moment where you shoot it up the nostril sure um, as think, it is if it was just salt water but uh, yeah. has anything anything uh, presented itself yet negatively in terms of side effects no um, you know I think the the number one reported side effect that we've had is um, uh, from individuals who've taken more than two doses on those subsequent doses tends to be a bit of sinus pressure uh, building up uh, over the course of a few hours post inoculation. So, you know, in, in the, in the three or four hours following, uh, you know, the nasal spray, people tend to have a, a bit of stuffiness, uh, but that so, is so consistent. It's basically, it's, it's basically a tissue reaction as well, opposed yep, to a system in reaction. Part, in part, but it is also consistent with, um, uh, the body's immune response mounting uh, against the uh, the antigens that we're presenting it. So far, you haven't published whether it's the the level of efficacy. Uh, I think uh, your chief scientist, uh, Preston Estep, has, has said that it's it's a complicated picture at the moment. Certainly. Any any progress there? Yeah, um, you know we're well into the data collection process. Um, it's going to be long because it is a complicated uh, vetting process and validation process. You know, there's a lot of considerations, not just antibodies, but getting into T-cell responses. You know, I think the, uh, the race for uh, a coronavirus vaccine has to be very considerate of giving people an amount of false hope uh, and, and pre-publishing data before it's really been vetted. Um, and, and we are scientists, so I, I want to be clear that we're going as fast as we can without uh, sacrificing scientific integrity. So, you know, we look forward to publishing this data once it's fully baked. Listen, it's been it's been wonderful talking to you, and thank you for staying up late for us. <laughs> Not and, a problem. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm really very keen to hear how you go with with Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Well, we'll be publishing pushing updates uh, on an ongoing basis. We have lots more to do, and, and certainly lots more to say. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, you know working with people as they begin to engage with, uh, you know, this new body of knowledge. Great Go. talking to you, Alex. Thanks very much. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. And now, an explainer from the world of money from the New Daily's finance editor, Ewan Black. Hello, Ewan. Hello, John. Now, modern, modern monetary theory, everybody's talking about it, this idea that government can print as much money as it wants to finance yep. whatever spending it likes. I guess in the popular imagination, think, oh, my God, printing money leads to disaster. Yeah. So yeah. Tell, us how yeah. it, t tell us how it necessarily does not. Yes. Um, well, 
maybe I'll just go into the, the, the kind of key points of modern monetary theory, which you kind of touched on there, which is the first one is that, you know, governments who have their own currency and central bank can easily print more money to, to fund more spending, which you touched on there. But the second kind of key point is that, um, you know, governments and economies, they face real and ecological limits to what they can produce and consume. And then the third one is that, um, you know, the government's financial deficit is everybody else's financial surplus. And this is getting to the point that when a government runs a budget deficit, although that's reported as a really negative thing in the media sometimes, that just means that more money is pumped back into the economy, uh, into households and businesses. But so a lot of these ideas aren't actually as new as they sound, and that's, that's one of the criticisms leveled at MMT, is that it's not a, a new idea, really. It's quite like Keynesianism. But where the two differ is that uh, MMT is, you know, people that are pushing for MMT, believe the decision to print more money to fund spending should lie with politicians and not central banks. And this is controversial because economists say it's a recipe for disaster as politicians who would always like to spend the kind of win over voters won't know when to turn off the tap when they need to, when the economy is overheating and we're going to, when, you know, inflation is such that we're going to run into real barriers of cash. Um, why, why, why do they make that argument that politicians should be in charge of it? I'm not actually. I think it's a bit more homicom why they make that argument. I think it's. I think it's because they can kind of react more quickly to to policies, and so they can just spend as much as they need to. But um, the argument against it, yeah, it's it's that um, they won't turn off the tap when they need to because spending is always popular, and this would mean this would lead to inflation quite quickly. The other thing against MMT is that you know MMT is say that governments will know when to stop or economists will know when to stop printing money and spending because they'll just simply look at the unemployment rate. As soon as everyone right. has a job, as soon as everyone has a job, you know, job done, turn up the, turn up the printing presses or, you know, these days stop t- tapping zeros into an Excel spreadsheet. But, you know, the economist Solis, like he, he's a former Treasury official, a former ANZ chief economist. I was speaking to him recently about this and he said this ignores the other side of the equation, which is capital. So people may still be unemployed, so that might look like you should keep on printing money and spending. But it could be the case that a lot of our equipment and our buildings have kind of reached their productive limits. Um, and, this, and that means if you keep on printing money, uh, you're pumping up demand for goods and services when the supply of those goods and services can't rise any higher. And this could be the case today. Uh, just to give you a quick example, uh, you know, obviously, with our borders closed, there's lots of aircraft that are sitting idle. And there's obviously lots of offices that will be left empty because people are working from home. So there's obviously going to be a lot of capital in the economy that can't be used, really. So yeah. if, we, if we just look at the supply, uh, if we just look at the unemployment rate as our only kind of guide to when to turn off the tap, then, we, you know, that's, that's kind of fraught. And the economists would argue that you're going to run into issues there. So the, so the idea of modern monetary theory is, is it that it's sort of meant to be kind of a, a liquid situation, fluid situation, sorry, that, that we sort of deploy as a sort of a, a boosting mechanism at a time we need yes. it. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and I, I, think, I think it's key contribution and, and something that is a really important point that even if MNT isn't adopted in full, that it's still, you know, still very valid. It's this idea that for years we've been focused on the budget surplus, the budget deficit, balancing the books, treating government budget like a household budget, which is completely wrong. And the, and the key contribution from MNT, I think, is to think more about balancing the economy and, 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 to, and, to be, and to err on the side of high spending to kind of get people back into work. Because a big part of it as well is this, this idea of uh, full employment. For years, yeah. um, you know, the, 
neoliberal economics, which is what we have today, they have this idea of a natural rate of unemployment, which yeah. is um, currently set around four and a half percent. And that and that idea is that once you drop below that level, um, then inflation runs away. So the the government and the central bank and the economists today in, in the in the in the mainstream have no uh, intention of getting everyone into the work. That's not the objective. The government said that. The, the objective is to get unemployment to around 5%, which means yeah. that there's always going to be 700,000 people without a job struggling to get by in Australia, and that, that's a built-in feature of our system. MM, MMT says that's ridiculous. Everyone should be given a job. I think it does have some questions to answer around inflation, and uh, perhaps that's just because you know, its proponents haven't been properly listened to, or perhaps there is just an issue there. Look, maybe it comes down to what the fundamentals are for each country, but uh, you and Black, we'll leave it there, but we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, sir. Thanks, John. Oh, when you're smiling When you're smiling The Louis Armstrong was right. That's the news. Turning that frown upside down makes the world seem a happier place. Really? An experiment from the University of South Australia confirms that the act of smiling, that is, pretending to smile, can trick your mind into being more positive simply by moving your facial muscles. In the experiment, a smile was induced by participants holding a pen between their teeth, forcing their facial muscles to replicate the movement and the structure of a smile. This led to a cheerier worldview, at least for as long as the pen stayed put. How does it work? The researchers found that when you forcefully practice smiling, it stimulates the amygdala the emotional centre of the brain, which releases neurotransmitters to encourage an emotionally positive state. Oh, can somebody please pull this pen out? I think it's stuck. If it's true that every crisis gives birth to opportunity, where is it to be found in the tedium of lockdown and the anxieties of COVID society. One idea that's been getting an airing is the opportunity of resurrecting our inner life and finding our true selves. Psychologist Lynn Bender, is there such a thing as a true self? And how does crisis work to reveal such a thing? Well, I know um, Jung would talk about our false self and uh, the self we present to the world. And then that's masking what we're really feeling and thinking. And maybe that's a way of looking at it. And Hugh Mackay talks about something similar. And now that we can't busy ourselves and run around and create a sense of who we are by, I did this, I wore that, I went there, my hair's purple now, we have to think about, well, what's left. And we also get plenty of thinking time and memories and ideas and failures and hopes will surface and that can be quite challenging and difficult but it can also be very productive. There's an idea that stress and particularly life-changing events 
that are stressful, uh, tend that that can bring out our true selves. How we respond in, in dealing with in dealing with those things. So, I, so I guess there's that, which is which is one thing. But but of course, the other thing is you, you'd, you'd have every parent out there at the moment who's doing homeschooling and and maybe juggling work, sort of saying, well. My COVID experience isn't having all this time for self-reflection. Mm. So how would this uh, this idea of finding my true self be um, be manifesting in my, in my situation? Well, it's uh, it's a very good point, John. But even if you are homeschooling, you can't divert yourself from how you're relating to your children, how you're relating to your partner if you have a partner, um, what it means, why are you doing this. You're confronted with the fears, um, what may happen in the future, and your, your lack of certainty now about the future. So it's it's bound to bring up questioning for people, even people who are busy in that way. I do wonder too if if, if this whole question of striving and identity is is so linked. Once the parenting schooling problem is one of the big issues, one of the big social issues. But I wonder if there, if that's actually having a shaping influence on on people's sense of identity. Okay, I'm now a teacher. I've got to teach my children. That's quite a powerful event, isn't it? Well, it is, and it maybe puts them more in touch with their children because we're such an outsourcing culture, really. For example, my granddaughter is doing Animal Farm on her syllabus. So I went and reread that and having a few discussions with her, I would never have probably realised, and if I was homeschooling her, I would. Um, and so even learning what your children are learning and the questions they're asking about the virus, has anyone been through this before? Will it ever end? What does it mean? We've, we've geared them to, a, to expectations that are now not being fulfilled and we're questioning whether they ever will be. Like, will they get a job for the older kids? Will they get to university? Will there be universities fully functioning? All these questions. I guess the, I guess one question is, is mm. that there's a certain number of people and it's, it's part of their lifestyle to, to explore themselves and to perhaps even, perhaps even elevate themselves and to look at these questions of meaning as, as a kind of, uh, as a kind of habit. Yeah. Uh, I guess the interesting thing will be to see uh, regular people who maybe may not be so inclined whether or not they're actually going down that path. Well, you do notice it more in even the dialogue that you see, the normal um, dialogue you see um, on social media. Not everybody, of course, but it's kind of like crisis definitely brings out the need to make sense of a trauma. When you've been through a trauma, there is always a question for people of fitting this, fitting this in with the meaning of their life. Where, for example, if you look at people who suffered the bushfires very recently, they're struggling with what their life is now, you know, the, 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 uh, the whole way they've built up their life has been pretty well vanquished. So what is the meaning of their life? And you see people who've had horrible events like losing a child, making sense of that and how, they, how are they going to go on and what are they going to do? And some people out of that decide to try and spare others that pain 
on, on the basis of that, it sounds like, you know, as we do emerge, and it's certainly taking Victoria for a while, but as we emerge from, from this, it sounds like there's, a, there's going to be a, a very large part of the population that will just have these big question marks going on inside their own heads. Well, there's more to come because even if as we emerge, I said if, that was a Freudian slip, as we emerge from the health crisis, mm. we're looking around at the ruination. It's like when the fires were over, what's left? Yeah. How do we rebuild? The other thing that Hugh Mackay talks about is how ephemeral happiness can be, that sense that you get something you want and you're totally happy, but we have there is a habituation factor and studies have shown that after winning the lottery, people's level of happiness just goes to a certain level again. It stops being ecstatic. Sometimes well, that's all, that's all about highs and lows, isn't it? I mean, we get these big highs and we want them to last, but of course, but of course, they don't. True, but that's also to do with what we think will make us happy, and and what we are dreaming of. You know, the the, the holiday overseas, the cruise, so that's a bit on the nose at the moment. And those things now seem a bit pointless, a bit irrelevant. So the big dreams of Australians now, the great Australian dream might be something more basic. So well, there you go. and it might be more relational. All right. Thanks very much, Lynn Bender. Oh, you're welcome. Nice to talk to you. So what do our teeth have to say about us when we die? For a start, they can tell us how old we are. Like rings on a tree, we have these incremental lines of a substance called a cellular, a cellular extrinsic fibre cementum that gets basically laid down in alternating light and dark lines, as I understand it. Uh, and But there's a whole lot more. And talking about it to me this morning is Dr. Maria Edinburgh. Senior Lecturer of Oral Anatomy and Histology. And Maria has just uh, been part of a team that's published uh, a new paper on dental anthropology. Hello, Maria. Tell us about dental anthropology. Uh, hello. Um, dental anthropology is a subfield of a biological anthropology, and it really utilises... Um, dentitions, uh, teeth and, uh, of, hu of uh, humans and non-human primates to uh, answer some important questions about our evolution. That is because our teeth and anyway primate teeth are really uh, records of uh, important life history information. And of course with, uh, with, with ancient sort of specimens, teeth might be all you've got. Tell us about acellular extrinsic fibre cementum. And, and, the, and the lines that, they, that come down. Incremental lines of acellular extrinsic fibre cementum. So that is one of five types of cementum we all have. Cementum is a very thin tissue which covers the roots of our teeth and the, of most of mammals, actually. And the, the important thing about that tissue, cementum, or in anthropology, dental anthropology, is it is because it, it is really grows in a regular appositional rhythm. So every year after the eruption of the tooth, we will gain one growth layer, or we are calling it incremental line. And then by counting number of uh, these incremental lines and adding the 
that number to the eruption age, known eruption age of over two of a tooth type, to the number of ca- counted lines, and we will get the very precise chronological age of an uh, deceased individual, which is fascinating because we. For most of the people, we can only gain that by what we call biological or skeletal age, which is a wide range in adults, for instance. So it's not quite precise. So the re- reading through teeth, so to speak, is, is more accurate. Now, this uh, this cementum can also help scientists identify life history parameters like pregnancies, skeletal trauma, but also renal disease. How does it help identify with renal disease is that to do with a, a drop in calcium or what's the what's the story there yes that's correct so all of these um if you like crises events during our lives would have something in common so because all of them will affect calcium metabolism if it is a pregnancy that's the uh, of, that's a fetal demand for uh, calcium for ossification if it is skeletal fracture or trauma that will be need for calcium to repair that bone and in uh, a case of kidney kidneys or renal diseases uh, it is uh, due to the function of kidneys because they regulate the calcium metabolism in our organism so lack of available calcium will actually be presumably visible as a darker line of uh, acellular extrinsic fiber cementum under the optical microscope because uh, during that year the event was occurring, uh, the, the, the cementum wouldn't be mineralized enough. So we would call it hypermineralized line. So how do you know, say, when this darkening occurs, how do you know that it's, say, specifically related to skeletal trauma or to renal uh, disease. What gives you a specific diagnosis? So that is a really good question. What we actually know is uh, based on clinical studies, based on what that means is that it, those studies were done on patients with known life history. So they disclosed their information about the events or diseases in their lives. And then scientists were studying the incremental lines and they were able to connect those events with those crises, darker lines in cementum. But when we work uh, with the ancient material, with people who, who died long ago, and we don't have any information about their lives, we are only able to detect possibly those crises, but we are not able, uh, so far, we were not able to distinguish between between the events, possible events. And that is something which actually uh, made us do this research and the study. You've actually found the limits here of optical microscopy. That is correct, yes. So as much as it is really good method to the count, to count the lines as an age estimation method to to detect certain changes in that microstructure of the tissue we still cannot just using visual effects observing incremental lines we're not able to distinguish between different uh, events in one person's life so that was the limitation and then some some scientists nevertheless knowing that would try to overreach and to actually interpret results as they really know what was going on. Okay, well, finally, look, dental anthropology, as I understand it, from what I've read, dates to the 1930s, 1940s. It seems, though, it's still got quite a way to go. 
Yes, we actually reached the point that we now know what we don't know. <laughs> and that is, that, that is really a, a good, actually, base for, for further research, especially with this development of different techniques and multidisciplinary approaches in whole science. So even though you have your specialization, you cannot work in a bubble. You need to collaborate and to, to explore further everything. All right. Very good. Well, thank you very much and uh, thanks for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that is a wrap for episode two of What Does That Mean? If the nerd in you has a burning question about science, etc., write to me at jelder at thenewdaily.com.au. In the meantime, thank you to our guests, thank you for listening, and thank you for being mindful COVID citizens. Cheers. Cheers.